This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. My name is Eve Massingham, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow in the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland. Today, we're going to be talking about wargaming. Since World War I, almost all major operations have been preceded by simulation and field exercises to test the strengths and weaknesses of battle plans. Combat simulations have grown in complexity over the past 20 years, and software now allows dozens of soldiers and even pilots to be linked together in a virtual world. As such, this is one area of military operations where technology is playing a significant role. To talk more about this, I'm delighted to be joined today by Major Scott Roach. Major Roach has been responsible for establishing the wargaming section of the Canadian Joint Warfare Centre since 2008. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Afternoon, Eve, and uh, thank you very much for the invite. Scott, you established the wargaming section of the Canadian Joint Warfare Centre in 2018. Can you tell us a little bit about the centre and its mission? Uh, sure. Um, so the Canadian Joint Warfare Centre has uh, a number of areas that it focuses on. Um, the branch I belong to in particular is the Joint Wargaming Experimentation and Simulation. So obviously the name uh, says itself. So within that branch, you know, we do uh, a multitude of different experiments. Uh, we conduct uh, simulation and support of experimentation and training. And of course, wargaming, which is uh, it's fairly new for us here. Um, the Warfare Centre itself has a primary role, and that is to support the Canadian Joint Operations Command. Um, we do that um, by assisting in the development um, of future uh, operations. Uh, so if a new operation comes up or uh, an operation that is currently in place is uh, going to change, we have the ability that we can provide uh, different avenues of development uh, to help them look at uh, different courses of action uh, that are open to them and different methods by which they can conduct those options uh, to achieve success. So in this podcast, Scott, we're looking at new technologies and the laws of armed conflict, and it's clear that increasingly automation is causing some challenges for the laws of war. How are you dealing with increasing automation and different types of new technologies in the design of your wargaming? Uh, so first of all, uh, wargaming is a little bit different to the most methods that we do for training. Uh, the fortunate thing with uh, wargaming is that you can create um, all of the components that you would find within a battle space. So when you talk about automation, um, it's really uh, the automation of equipments, uh, the automation of networks, etc. If I take equipments uh, like unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, drone aircraft or drone uh, ships, boats. Um, the thing to remember that um, none of these operate off uh, artificial intelligence. You know, there is always a human in the loop. There's always a person as an operator for these. So when you're wargaming, you can have representation of an automated system like a UAV or a, a boat or a drone or whatever 
but there is still a person uh, that is playing the role of the operator that controls that particular equipment. Uh, so for Wargaming, we're fairly fortunate. It's it's easy enough for us to do that representation within the Wargame itself. Uh, most of our Wargames uh, at this stage are manual Wargames, so it's based on maps uh, and counters that represent either troops in the field or aircraft or ships, so satellites, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, when we run a war game, we can generate a piece of kit that is supposed to be uh, representat representational of an automated system, but there is still a human player uh, that represents the faction that owns that equipment. Does that help answer that question? Yeah, and I guess I'm just wondering then, does that mean that you're using these kind of uh, uncrewed devices uh, across sort of all domains, uh, in the air, at sea, and, and on land as part of the wargaming? Yeah, so the benefit with uh, with wargaming is that we can, uh, we can generate uh, these systems for any of the environments. What we do is we do the research um, of the actors, and, and the equipment to find out if it exists, how it's used, how it's operated and how it's employed. And then we can represent that into the war game, whether it's, you know, a, sh a threat on land or a threat in the air or, or a threat on the seas. So yeah, we can certainly do it in each of those theaters, but it, it does take a lot of research um, to make sure that the data behind what we're using is accurate. And so you're clearly doing a lot of research to design these scenarios and to introduce into the, the wargaming the appropriate uh, technologies and uh, different frameworks and different sort of methods of, of military activities that take place. Are there also some legal frameworks and factors that are causing deliberation and, and thought into the, the wargaming? The laws of armed conflict is what governs how, uh, you know, we behave as a profession of arms. Um and it, it goes beyond just, you know, the normal conventional war. It also covers operations other than war. Um, so if we're, if we're running a war game that deals with that specific subject, then we would have the subject matter experts uh, participate in that game to provide that guidance as the war game progresses. Great. And so clearly when you're doing this war gaming and using these simulations of various different technologies and, and automation, uh, weaponry is a clear element to those wargamings. But autonomy generally has huge application for all facets of military operations. Are there any issues, uh, legal or otherwise, uh, which you, you see for various different defence applications which are enabled by autonomous technologies? Uh, so again, for me, that's 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 outside my field. I mean, in all honesty, there is. I mean, the laws of armed conflict, as I mentioned, I mean, these govern how systems are used um, within a conflict zone. Um, the side of the house within the military that's responsible for that is the legal side. So I'm not a legal officer. I'm not a, a member of the Judge Advocate General, et cetera. So I can't really comment on that. How we, uh, how we manage that when we're doing... Uh, wargaming um, to, to assist with preparations for having to go on operations, et cetera. 
like I said before, you know, we make sure that we have representatives from, you know, the JAG, the Judge General or the legal side who are there as, you know, the, the subject matter experts to provide that guidance. So they're involved in the sort of the design of, of the wargaming as such to make sure that it's uh, reflective of, of the realities of, of the legal framework. Oh, absolutely. But, and we do that for, for all aspects of our war games. Um, you know, I mean, someone like me, I mean, I'm, I'm a specialist in one particular area, but I'm not a specialist in all areas. So as we design and we develop war games, and this is very common, you know, for anyone that does war games design for the military. You know, you reach out to those people who are the subject matter experts in their particular field. I'm not a naval officer, so I reach out to the Navy for naval operations. I'm not Air Force, so again, I reach out to the Air Force for Air Force operations. Um, and those aspects, and I'm Army, obviously, and those aspects of Army, sorry, Army warfare that I don't, uh, that either myself or my people don't know, we reach out to the SMEs that deal with that. Um, autonomous systems, uh, the legal side of it, we would do the same. You know, if we had a problem that was dealing with this, then we would reach back to them and say, you know, come and help us with the, the design. Probably what is more importantly, though, that when the actual war game is conducted, uh, they are participants in that war game and that they uh, actually carry out the role um, that they are meant to do in this case. And so I'm thinking then that you potentially also involve, I guess, the technologists in the design of the, of the wargaming in terms of thinking about what sort of uh, technology and, and types of automation might be possible? Uh, not generally. I mean, uh, the technologists, uh, we tend to do the research ourselves. Uh, I have a number of people that work with me who are very good uh, researchers. Um, not all of the information that we need is available, um, but there certainly is available out there, you know, if you know where to look. Uh, I mean, Google is your friend, as they say, but, I mean, there are, you know, there are other areas that you can go to and, and gain the information that you need in, in order to support uh, the war game design. In some cases, uh, that may not always be the case. And when you run a war game and you're making assumptions, uh, you highlight those assumptions and the, uh, the people that the war game is supporting, you make them aware that, okay, you know, we've identified that this equipment being an autonomous system exists. Um, we know this much information about it, but there are gaps in that information. So the result will have limitations. Okay, and so is is all the wargaming then sort of based around I existing technologies or is there some thought to considering sort of technologies that, that might come into existence uh, and how the Canadian Defence Forces might be able to best utilise those technologies or, or respond to those technologies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the benefits of wargaming um, is your ability to actually wargame future capabilities. Um, so, you know, if there was a consideration, you know, by the year 2030 or 2035 or something like that, that there was an expectation that certain types of capability would exist by then, uh, autonomous systems, unmanned aircraft, not, not unmanned aerial vehicles, but unmanned aircraft. Um, 
But again, I mean, to make that valid, what we do is we never uh, we never create anything within the war game that does not exist either in uh, a uh, conceptual conceptually um, or you know I mean we're not we're not doing Star Wars. So what we do is when we when we come across a requirement to put something into a war game, Again, we do the research to determine if anyone around the world has been looking at that capability. Now, if they have, then we can put it in, but again, with those same limitations. If it doesn't exist, if no one's looked at it, if it hasn't been a consideration as a technology development by anybody in the future, um, then it's really not included because you're you're creating false data and the war game becomes... uh, becomes a waste you don't answer the question or you don't provide the solution to what you're after that that makes a lot of sense how have you found um that uh soldiers and sailors and and air force personnel have have been responding to us war war gaming in in a much sort of more high-tech way uh, than was possible in the past well, it's funny. I mean, wargaming has been around for a long time. I mean, wargaming dates back uh, to the 1800s. Um, so it's it's not something new. Um, it's gone through, you know, various stages of being used and then disappearing and then coming back. And realistically, I mean, you know, I mean, we sort of stood this up in 2018 here in Canada within the organisation I'm in. Other organisations within the Canadian Armed Forces have been doing wargaming. Um, other countries, certainly, you know, Australia, uh, the US, the UK, and New Zealand, uh, Germany, France, uh, countries within NATO. So wargaming is not something new. It just has a. Uh, it's been reinvigorated, I guess. Um, and the, the and we call it the we call it professional wargaming. Um, you know, I'm sure you're aware of hobby wargaming. You know, there's a lot of people that do wargaming on computers and iPads and all that sort of thing. But we call this professional wargaming, um, which is it's a little bit different the way that it's the way that it's designed um, and then delivered or executed. Um, but it's uh, it's growing uh, it, and it's. It's a very economic way uh, to prepare or to determine, um, you know, a, a future course of action or a future operation um, to get an idea before you actually, you know, commit people and commit money and commit resources to something that is fairly major and fairly, you know, uh, money intensive. You you mentioned how you know it, it's clearly different to uh, people playing uh, video games uh, at, at home. I'm just wondering if you could give listeners a bit of an, an idea about sort of roughly what it, what it might look like. Are we talking about um, a, a whole range of of military personnel sort of coming together in one uh, training area for this, or is this something that can happen uh, with elements you know across? Uh, the, the continent, uh, I guess, in terms of being able to contribute to an ongoing scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's uh, two ways of war gaming. Um, one is where the traditional method, where you uh, have people come together into one place, uh, one, uh, and 
we have maps and we have counters representing the different um, elements of the war game and people will stand around and make decisions and it'll it's turned and there's sequences and objectives etc etc uh, at the same token we've also been able to run and a lot of this has been due to the pandemic and has been sort of forced upon us where we've had to do uh, what we call distributed wargaming. Um, we ran a, a war game here back in uh, August last year uh, for CJOC and the Navy um, for submarine search and rescue. And this was done uh, between uh, Ottawa here, the capital in Ontario, uh, uh, an element in Halifax on one coast and in Esquimalt on the opposite coast. So from one end of the country to the other and into the centre. And we had, uh, I think we had somewhere about 80 or 90 people participating in that war game over a couple of days. It's quite amazing, isn't it, what we've we've all been forced uh, to do as a result of um, of COVID, but it's I guess it's also uh, given us some possibilities for, for the way we, we do things into the future. Uh, and I guess that links to the, the next thing um, that I wanted to ask about, and you've already mentioned, you know, that uh, Australia and the United States and others do these wargaming uh, activities. And I understand a lot of the work uh, of your centre is focused on wargames for joint operations. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, w- what that means and, and what are some of the unique factors when you're developing wargames with and, and, and having to have your systems interact with, with partner systems? Well, so that's so that's the thing. Um, our wargaming is manual. It's not based on uh, computer software. Um, although we have, you know, we've used a couple of uh, a couple of different programs. Um, they're independent. It's not it's not like simulation. So it's not like um, uh, modeling and simulation based uh, wargaming. Um, although some people do use uh, do use that, uh, we don't. Uh, well, not yet. Uh, we're progressing towards that. Um, for us, a lot of uh, a lot of what we do is very mechanical. Um, we do use uh, programs uh, to enhance that capability. Uh, for example, uh, there's a system called Vassal, V A S S A L. All that is is just a an engine that you can modify and manipulate. You know add maps to it, create counters and all of that. Um, when the pandemic came uh, and we had to do war games and, you know, we were on two sides of the country and we couldn't get together, Vassal was uh, allowed us to just take a, a manual map board system and actually put it onto a, a computer system that we could then, you know, distribute between three locations across Canada. And we did that over... Uh, I think we did it over Skype or Zoom. Um, and a lot of people have been doing that. I mean, we talked to uh, our equivalents in the States and the UK and Australia, and they've they've done the same. I, I guess the benefit uh, of being forced down that road is it's shown us that we can actually quite easily achieve uh, a level of wargaming capability um, without too much difficulty. Uh, at a relatively, you know, fairly economic cost. Um, so that's one of the things that we, we're going to pursue to continue developing that. Um, the Warfare Centre itself, I mean, 
you mentioned that you know it's it's a wargaming center. It's not uh, the wargaming is you know it's probably ten percent of what the warfare center does. It does a whole range of activities. Uh, the wargaming is just a very small component. And so, have you engaged in any uh, specific war games with um, partner uh, operators, or is that something that's still on the horizon? Uh, no, um, you know we've uh, we've uh, you know we've got a couple of partners, uh, certainly down in the US. I mean, uh, there is a very strong bond um, with the same um, requirements for the defence of uh, you know North America, which includes Canada uh, and the US. So you know we have a number of partners down in the US within their military organisations that we collaborate on a, a lot of activities. Um, some of it is for, you know, common operational focus, but a lot of it has been, and probably more so, has been uh, developing the wargaming capabilities, uh, you know, developing some of the technology to make it easier to do under a distributed umbrella, um, the sharing of methods of how to conduct wargames so that you get uh, the right results. Um you know there are there are a number of conferences that occur uh, each year. Um, uh, there's one, in fact, this week there is one going on called Connections US, uh, which is all about professional wargaming. Um, in fact, one of the presentations just prior to me sitting here with you was on about distributed wargaming. So that's quite funny. Um, the, uh, Australia runs the same wargaming uh, conference, uh, Connections Australia, uh, Connections the Netherlands, Connections UK, and Connections North here in Canada. So there, there are quite a, a number of these that go on. Um, and this, uh, this sort of has, it's been very good because it's introduced us to other people in the same profession, same responsibility for conducting professional war games um, for their different organisations and allowed us uh, to get together and do a little bit more collaboration to improve uh, on what we do. So if we then, I guess, link back to the the new technologies and autonomy, I guess I have uh, two, two questions. One is uh, what sort of functions uh, within the wargaming scenario, and, and obviously that is, as you said, reflective of, of what's happening in real life, um, you see for these sort of uh, uncrewed or or autonomous, depending on you know how far along the spectrum of autonomy you take that, um, you see these systems being useful for. Obviously, we, we've mentioned weapons uh, earlier, but are there particular uh, aspects of logistics, for example, that you incorporate into your war games that have or make use of these technologies? Uh, I'm not aware of anything. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, some auto not every autonomous system. Uh, and, and again, I mean, uh, for me, it's, it's you, uh, there's a very thin line between what we call autonomous. To me, full autonomy means that it, it operates independently like uh, a degree of artificial intelligence. But as I've mentioned before, I mean, all autonomous systems, although there's no person in that equipment, uh, if it's a, you know, if it's an unmanned aerial vehicle or whatever, uh, there is always someone who's controlling it. Um, there are equipments out there that 
don't carry weapon systems. You know, their function is, uh, and a UAV is a perfect example. You know, it's it's a flying camera. You know, it's designed to go out and be able to see what's around and what's on the ground and what the other guy is doing um, and provide a, a video feedback. Um, so uh, as far as the ability of autonomous systems to deliver uh, logistics equipment, um, I do know from from our research, you know, that uh, that there are countries out there that are looking at autonomous systems that can do that, you know, that can be piloted by a person, you know, in one location and it will drive to where it needs to drive to. Uh, it uses a camera to see, it uses a navigation system to navigate by, but at the end of the day, it's still, it's still under the control of a person. So, I mean, some of these equipments are out there. Uh, some of them are in development and... I, in all honesty, for me personally, this is not you know, the CAF speaking, this is Scott Roach speaking, um, you know, we will see a lot of changes and the application of these systems as we go forward in the future. I mean, the one thing to, you know, one of the considerations of these is that when you don't have a person operating that piece of equipment, you're no longer putting a human being at risk, uh, you know, and we're talking about, you know, conflict here. So the less you can risk a person, the better it is. Um, within our war games, we can, uh, as I said before, I mean, we can create uh, the representation of these within our war games and we can operate them within the war games as they're intended to be used. So, you know, we can have something that represents an unmanned aerial vehicle and it can move around on the... Uh, the map, be it digital or be it uh, a manual map system, but at the end of the day, it's still, you know, the decisions on what that piece of equipment does and where it goes and, and what it achieves uh, is still based on the input of a person. Sounds like there's some really uh, interesting applications that, that may um, come into war games uh, going forward then based on that sort of crystal ball um, idea that there will be uh, greater developments in these technologies. So I'm guess I'm wondering then whether um, sort of countering the the use of these technologies or defending against sort of attacks on on these technology systems is something that's been thought of in the war game process. I guess I'm thinking sort of you know um, if you are using these technologies uh, and the enemy is trying to jam or uh, infringe your use of these technologies, is that something that could be a part of a war game of the future? Well, I mean, it, it, things like that are a part of the war game now. I mean, you know, you you talked about jamming. I mean, that's cyber warfare, uh, cyber warfare, both offensive and defensive. You know, it, it exists out there today. I mean, you know, you've only got to watch the news and find out about a bank or a business or someone, you know, who was uh, hacked into. I mean, that's all cyber warfare. So, it, you know, cyber cyber exists out there today. Um, and, you know, we include, uh, we include cyber as a part of our war games when it's, um, when it's relevant to the war game. Uh, you know, when you design a war game, you only include those elements that are actually relevant to the situation. Um, so if we had a war game and we were dealing in networks and, uh, and you know, an autonomous, an autonomous system is working off a signal, whether it's 
a you know a satellite signal, which is probably generally what it would be, or uh, a radio signal of some kind, then you know to defeat that, um, you know, cyber is one methodology that you could employ to certainly uh, stop that type of capability being used. So yeah, I mean, if uh, it is a consideration, um, anyone who, in my mind and and you know, my experience, generally people who develop um, equipment as a capability to do one thing, um, also consider how that one thing could be um, defended against. Great. Well, thank you so much, Scott. That was really interesting to hear a little bit about what the Canadian Joint Warfare Centre is doing in some of its activities in relation to uh, wargaming and to think a little bit about how uncrewed systems and potentially into the future systems with greater levels of autonomy might be incorporated into into these systems. Uh, so thank you very much for your time. Uh, my pleasure, Eve. I'm, uh, I'm glad that uh, you reached out to us and uh, I hope uh, the information I've provided has been of benefit and will help you in, uh, in your endeavour. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.